0: University of Michigan. Beautiful fall day, and I see this woman way in the distance. She's walking toward the library, and I'm walking toward the library. Christine Gregory. Beautiful, smart, kind. I quickly calculate trajectories and modulate my pace so that I'll arrive when she arrives. I'll open the door for her. We'll get to talking. It's going to be great. Good plan. Then, out of the periphery of my vision, coming from the other direction, I spy this guy. Harold, Harold sees me, Harold sees Christine, he's thinking, if I'm slick, I'm going to bump into Christine first before that fool does, so Harold picks up the pace, starts walking a little bit faster, but no one named Harold is going to ruin my plans, I start moving a little faster myself, trying to keep it cool at first, then opening up my stride, Harold speeds up, I speed up, faster. Faster, 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 and before I can really think this strategy through, I'm running. Full out, Usain Bolt style, arm flapping, book bag failing to either side, cheeks puffing, heels coming in fast to the opposite direction. Christine hears calamitous commotion, looks up from her book, sees two idiots she barely knows barreling past her to either side. She scowls, shakes her head, and walks into the library Alone, I bend over, panting, to cuss Harold out, and he has the nerve to say, "Man, she wasn't even going to talk to you anyway." Today, on Snap Judgment from WNYC Studios, we proudly present Run For Run For, amazing stories from real people moving as fast as they can. My name is Lynn Washington. Never pay attention to anyone named herald when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Imagine you have a really big secret burning inside of you and it becomes so big you're desperate to tell. How would you do it? Our next story starts in exactly that moment at the office of a poverty agency in Oregon.
1: I'm sitting at the accountant's desk. The executive director comes to the door and says, this is Ron Duncan. He's going to be our new accountant. He's about 5 foot 8, light reddish brown hair and glasses that are black and kind of small framed. He says hello in a very soft voice and he asked me what i was doing so i say i'm making a payroll because today's payday and we have to get paid and i know how to do it so i just came in and did it as i say that you know he he smiles and he he just really looks me in the eye and then he came to work at the agency and he and i were at a community meeting and We went out for coffee afterwards, and we walked, and walked and talked, really, literally, until the sun came up. Sometime as the sky was lightening, I just decided I was going to tell him who I was and the whole story of my life. I said, I need to tell you some stuff about me that you don't know. There's a lot more to my life than what you see. I, I've been living as a fugitive since 1970, and I'm on the FBI's most wanted list.
2: See, it all started in Boston, when Catherine was only 21 years old. The Vietnam War was raging, and President Nixon had just announced the invasion Operation of Cambodia. The
3: armed forces of South Vietnam, attacks are being launched this week.
2: Four Vietnam students were shot and killed for protesting at Kent State, and then two were killed at Jackson State. Catherine was part of the National Student Strike Force at Brandeis University, protesting all the shootings and the war.
1: I was really looking for something to commit to, and I really wanted to do something clandestine and direct against the war." So one day, Catherine was at the
2: strike center, organizing and protesting as usual, and this guy named Stanley Bond approached her and said,
1: I heard you want to do something more about the war. I'm putting together a guerrilla group. Do you want to be part of it? And I said, yes, it seemed like this is exactly what I had been asking for. He was a Vietnam veteran, and he also was a convicted felon on a furlough release from the state prison.
2: Stanley introduced her to the other members of the guerrilla group. Susan Sachs was also a student at Brandeis. Robert Valerian lefty Gilday came from the same prison release program at Northeastern University. And the group would meet up in an apartment in downtown Boston to plan their operations.
1: The specific and concrete thing that we would start out doing was robbing banks to finance the revolution.
2: Their first target was the State Street Bank. On the day of the robbery, Stanley, Susan, and Robert went inside the bank. Lefty stood across the street as lookout. And Catherine was pulled over on a side street in the switch car with the motor running.
1: The minutes kind of ticked by and then the stolen getaway car pulled up behind me and Stanley and Susan and Robert Valeri got out and just really hastily got into the back seat of the car I was in. And Stanley was giving me turn-by-turn directions to get back to our apartment in the back bay. I didn't feel anything. I had ice water in my veins. And so I was driving, turn here, turn there, turn here. And then we heard on the car radio that a bank had been robbed and a police officer had been shot by somebody across the street from the bank. We knew that it had to be Lefty Gilday, whose job was to stand guard, but nobody was supposed to shoot anybody. I freaked completely out. I was horrified. Something really wrong had been done, had been done to a person. We were in trouble like we had never imagined.
2: The officer who had been shot was named Walter Schroeder. He died the next day.
1: By that time, we had already left Boston.
2: They all went on the run. And one by one, Robert, Stanley, Susan, and Lefty were caught. But not Catherine.
1: I just felt like it still made sense not to surrender.
2: Even though the FBI had just put her on their most wanted
1: list. The government was an international outlaw, and they had no authority to hold me accountable for anything I had done.
2: So for years, she moved from city to city with the help of radicals. She changed her identity from Catherine Power to Alice Metzinger, never getting too close to anyone until she found herself in Oregon.
1: I got pregnant and I had my son. He changed everything about my life. I had left everybody over and over and here's somebody I couldn't leave and didn't want to leave. I became more grounded. I got a job at the poverty agency and that's where I met Ron. But still, she was missing something. I'm desperate for a level of authenticity that hasn't been available and so I leap.
2: And she ends up face-to-face with Ron as the sun's coming up, telling the truth for the first time.
1: He said, your secret is safe with me. I won't betray you. We were deeply in love right away.
2: Together, they led a pretty normal life. Gardening, fishing, cooking. Ron and her son Jamie called her Alice. And by this time, She had lost interest in overthrowing the government, but she still struggled with what to tell Jamie. He was now a teenager and he had a lot of questions. All that came to a head one day when he came home from school with a note from his teacher.
1: His science teacher wrote, he's not working to his potential. And I remember sitting on our couch in the living room talking with him. I had the, the report card in my hand. I said, what's that about? And he just looked at me and he said, well, what about you? You were really smart and you got a scholarships You aren't living up to your potential. You know, I didn't have an answer for that. You know, he had detected one of the contradictions in my own story of my life. I felt really inadequate as a parent. My shame was so deep that I buried everything.
2: So she kept herself busy with work and friends to avoid feeling that shame. And slowly, she started to just fall apart. She eventually didn't want to leave the house or get off the couch And that's when she found an ad in the paper for a group on women and depression. She decided to go, but it wasn't until after the group session that Catherine got the chance to really talk to the therapist.
1: We walked past the waiting room of the hospital, and the lights were off. It was really dim, and I said, come in here. I want to talk to you. We could just barely see each other's faces, and I said, I want to tell you why I can't resolve the issues of my family of origin. I'm a fugitive. She said, how long ago is this? Nobody's going to care about that now. It couldn't possibly be that bad. And I said, well, yes, it is. A police officer was killed. And it is that bad. It's still that bad. She said, well, why don't you see what you can find out? about how bad it might be, and gave me the name of an attorney. The next day, I called the lawyer from a payphone, made an appointment to come over to his office. I went into his office, he closed the door, and I I tried to tell him my name. Um, I hardly could say it because it was like for more than 20 years. My life had depended on not ever saying my own name. So He and I talked, and he said he would use very roundabout communication methods to contact the FBI and find out what the situation would really be. After I went to see the attorney, I felt really bad that I had done that without telling Ron. That felt really deceptive. That evening, Ron and I were talking about you know his day and my day and and then i just said no i can't do this i can't do this i said i have to tell you something i went to see a lawyer today he raised his voice what have you done he said he was just really really furious he really did feel that i had betrayed him and broken you know kind of sacred trusts that were at the bottom of our relationship I tried to assure him that it was just to see what might be possible. He was very accusing. Why don't you just leave
2: now? But she didn't leave just then. Catherine was still negotiating with the FBI. It took a year and a half before she finally had a deal and could tell her son Jamie she was turning herself in.
1: Ron and Jamie sat in our living room, and I told him very directly that... That the name he knew me by, the name everybody knew me by, wasn't my original name, and that I was a fugitive, and that I was a fugitive because I'd been part of a crime, and that I was going to give myself up and quit being a fugitive, and it meant that I would have to spend five or so years in prison. I saw him reeling at this shift in the whole, like, foundation of his life. And then I asked him, I said, well, you know, this is some pretty heavy stuff. You probably, you know, I would imagine you'd have some strong feelings about it. Do you want to talk about them? And he said, look, I'm a teenager. Right now, you're here. When you're gone, I'll miss you. Can I go see my friends now? And... He went and saw his friends, and he told his friends. And I knew that that was a really likely thing. That's why I had never entrusted him with this secret before.
2: As angry as she had made Ron and Jamie, Catherine knew that this was the price she had to pay in order to reconnect with her mom and dad and brothers and sisters, who she hadn't seen in 20 years. And she did. Her parents traveled from Colorado to Boston to be with her as she surrendered.
4: We begin tonight with an extraordinary extraordinary tale of murder, suspense, and a 23-year-old mystery that was solved today.
2: At her trial in Boston, Catherine had to face police officer Walter Schroeder's
1: widow and children for the first time. Walter Schroeder's oldest daughter, who is pretty much the family spokesperson, was eloquent in criticizing how unremorseful i seemed and she pointed out that the press had paid lots of attention to my suffering and my family's suffering and her father was just this unnamed police officer
2: even though the news reports often referred to him as a slain officer the city had not forgotten walter schroeder in fact He came from a big family of Boston cops. And the square in front of the police station is named Schroeder Plaza. So Catherine's arrest was a big win for the city and for the Schroeder family. And when Catherine saw that, everything just
1: hit home. I had been very defended by statements like I wasn't even there. And I listened. To what she said and let it affect the way I behaved. That includes a much clearer acknowledgement of how my being part of that group led to their father's death and to the suffering that they had as a result.
2: Throughout this time did you ever take action to reach out to Walter Schroeder's
1: family? Um, it it didn't seem appropriate. It, it just really didn't seem appropriate. It, it, um, I think that's all I want to say about it.
2: Catherine pled guilty to armed robbery and second degree murder. At sentencing, the judge gave her 8 to 12 years
1: my picture of what was gonna happen is that I would be in a prison in Oregon for about five years.
2: That was not the case. Catherine did her time in a prison in Massachusetts, 3,000 miles away from Jamie and Ron.
1: That was just a real shock to the system, if you will. We weren't making everyday life together. That was just such a, a huge part. Of our connection. I think he became very depressed so I think we had a lot of distance and a lot of estrangement and ultimately our relationship didn't survive it. We divorced after I got out of prison and he passed away about I think it might be 10 years ago now. He was very sick, but I took him around to some of the places that had been our favorite places. We were able to talk about our sadness that our relationship hadn't survived the separation. We stopped blaming each other and recovered a sense that we'd had a long and good time together and that, that was really worth something.
2: Do you feel like it was uh, worth it to go to surrender and turn yourself in and ha you know, have everything happen the way it did?
1: I know that that it's made a difference for my parents and my siblings that I'm back. I know that it's been it's been a really joyful thing.
2: So you feel like it was worth it for you
1: yeah I think it was worth it for a lot of people including myself I had some sorrow over some of the ways that things like my relationship with Ron came out but I never had one minute of wishing I had not done it I mean I don't feel like I sacrificed myself in this I feel like I recovered myself
0: Many thanks to Catherine Ann Power for sharing her story. And to learn more about Catherine's experience, check out her book, Doing Time, Papers from Framingham Prison. The original score for that piece was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Adiza Egan. Snappers, for the first time ever, Snap Judgment Live is going to the Lone Star State, Houston, Austin, Dallas. This show is made of fire and magic. Don't miss out. Get tickets at snapjudgment.org. And when Snap returns, you're going to have to buckle up when the Run Forward episode continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Run Forward episode. Today, we're featuring amazing stories from people with some place to be. Now, this next story begins on the streets of Palestine, where Snap gets to introduce the Speed Sisters.
5: I've loved race cars since I was a little girl. I love to watch them. I've always loved the sound of cars.
6: When Mara was growing up, her mom worked as a driving instructor. Mara always wanted to drive with her mom and watch how she worked the car.
5: I couldn't see in front of me, so my mom was scared to let me drive. But when she was next door, I rounded up all the neighborhood kids and told them to push. They pushed me in the car until we got past my house, so my mom couldn't hear the engine. I couldn't get the car in a second, so I drove through the
6: whole neighborhood, and first, I burnt the engine. But when her parents saw the car, instead of getting angry, they were actually pretty impressed.
0: the day she stole the car when she was 11 years old. It was clear. She is unique.
6: Now, Mara's 21. She's in a parking lot in her hometown, Janine, a Palestinian city in the northern West Bank. Normally, this lot is used for a farmer's market. But today, Mara's with her pit crew, making final adjustments to her souped-up VW GTI before the race starts. The lot is full of people. There are little kids standing next to their bicycles, some climbing a wall to get a good view of the track. The other racers pit crews change tires and pump gas. Only a few of them wear matching gear from a sponsor. Tailgaters blast their boom boxes, grow lunch, and smoke hookah. The racers themselves stand next to their BMWs and VWs and Porsches, adjusting their helmets. And there's Khaled, the head of the Racing Federation, reading off the rules.
0: All racers, please come to the starting line. If you don't join us, it's your own problem. When the results are announced, you can't object to the timing. If you have an objection, you have to submit it in writing and pay $140. It's your problem if you didn't review the rules. I don't care.
6: This is not NASCAR. Racers are not racing against each other. They're doing speed trials, Whoever makes it around the track in the shortest amount of time, wins. At the end of the day, Mara wins the race in Janine. Most every racer in the Federation is a man, but then there's Mara's team, the Speed Sisters. They're the first all-women's racing team in the Arab world. There's five women on the team. Mona, Betty, Mara, and Soon, the team captain.
1: Well, we're teammates, and
6: we compete against the guys. At the same time, we compete within our own team for the title of the fastest woman. Driving depends on a few things. Experience, talent, your pit crew, and your car. Mara's got a lot of talent, but she doesn't have a ton of cash to spend on a top-of-the-line car. Her teammate, Betty, does.
4: My name, Betty Sade, is the brand of Speed Sisters and of Palestinian racing. I'm my parents' only daughter. There's actually just my brother and me. And we come from a well-off family. So I've always gone to the best schools, had the best education, the best opportunities. And my mom always used to say to me, I want you to be the most beautiful, the smartest. And in order to make her proud of me, this is what I've
6: always done. Betty's from Bethlehem, the big city. Most of Mara's family comes from the refugee camp in Janine, including her dad, who moved out when he married her mom.
5: Uh, I started racing using the same car that my mother was using as a driving instructor. My father told me he didn't want me racing on my mom's car anymore. He said that he'd get me whatever car I wanted. All I had to do was ask for the car and he would get it. I was really surprised when my dad said that because several of my siblings and I were in college and my father wanted to start building a house for us, which is expensive. When I asked him, how can you afford to do this? He said, don't worry about it. We're going to get the car. So my father decided to buy a car rather than build a house.
6: Mara was the fastest woman racer. Then Betty joined the Speed Sisters.
4: So from the very first day I joined the team and I won Noor and Mara were already part of the team But when I came and won, they knew there was real competition
2: I'm
4: a good racer Mara's also a good racer, but I get more popularity than she does And it's not that she's bad looking, but I take care of myself And I'm good looking
6: after Mara's win in her hometown, she finds it difficult to keep up with Betty. Her car is slower. And even if her technique is better, Betty has a bigger engine and a lot of talent. Their next race in Bethlehem is the second to last of the season. And they're tied. Winning the championship is very important
5: to me because of my family's sacrifices. They have to drive for hours to Bethlehem to watch me race, so at the very least, I should be able to bring them the championship.
6: Mara makes great time on the track one minute, 47 seconds. But Betty's round is better, and she beats Mara by six seconds. There was always a possibility that Betty
5: would win, it was a tiebreaker. She had two wins, I had two wins. But because I made the
6: improvements to the car, I thought that I would be winning. Mara can't believe her loss. She's devastated for days. And then, a picture of Betty's car pops up on Facebook. It's from the race. As Betty's rounding a turn, her trunk pops open. Technically, this is against Federation rules and Betty could be disqualified. This happened once to Mara and she had to forfeit. Now, Betty's team denies it, and the Federation sides with Betty.
4: When you have a Federation that you feel is against you, and you've
5: spent all this money, and your parents have made this sacrifice, and it's possible that the Federation overthrows everything in one ruling, what's the point? The Federation's decision was bad. And I decided to stop racing. Life became very boring for me after I quit racing. I'd only go to college and come back home and then go to college the next day. I'm sick and tired of walking the same streets, seeing the same people, same faces. I love Janine and the people, but I need to leave town and see something new.
6: So while Betty's doing photo shoots and giving interviews almost daily, Mara's at home in Janine. She's not racing. She's not even training. Maysoon, the Speed Sisters team captain, wants Mara back. She calls her up and asks to meet her for coffee. They sit down and Maysoon tells her. Life isn't fair. Things aren't black and white. When things aren't going how they're supposed to, you just have to keep going. You can't let these things defeat you. Mara doesn't look Maysoon in the eyes. She just plays with her food. I mean, we're living under occupation. What if we say, I'm sick of this situation and can't change it. I want to live somewhere else. When you've been treated unjustly, you have to persist. Mara is quiet as she drives home from the cafe. She keeps her eyes fixed on the road. The next morning, she sits her dad down in the kitchen. He smokes a whole cigarette. She bounces both her feet, looks at the floor. They sit in silence, and then she tells him. I want to go back.
4: What if Halid causes you more problems?
5: Forget the last problem.
6: Before Mara can even finish her thought, her dad is out of his seat, across the room and looking at the calendar.
4: On March 9th, you have the race in Jericho. How do you know? I just do.
5: Even though it's important for me to be racing for Palestine Engineering and my parents, that's not what I felt. The truth is, I wanted to go back, and I wanted to race for me.
6: It's race day. We're at Jericho. All the Speed Sisters are here, including Betty and Mara. And Khalid, the head of the Racing Federation, raises his megaphone
0: if you have a problem don't talk to me give it to the guy in charge of racer affairs give him the objection letter and 140 dollars and he will give it to us
6: it's at this point that one man in the crowd yells out please god save us from the need to object (laughs) betty and mara go down to the track to walk through its twists and turns They try to remember which cones to avoid, to anticipate where they should downshift, where to break. I usually get to the races first. I go around
4: and memorize the track. That day, Mara came, and she walked around and memorized the track as well.
5: I remember this course being very exciting. There isn't a course I don't memorize 100%. This
6: race is three trials. The best time wins. Trial one. Mara speeds around the track, pushing her car hard into every turn. She makes amazing time. One minute, 27 seconds. Betty also guns her engine, but she can't keep up with Mara. She comes up four seconds short. But then, just as Mara's pulling into her prep area for the second trial, the engine light comes on in her car.
4: Ah, the
6: Mara's pushed her car too far, and she can't race the second trial. She sinks to the ground. But Maysoon comes to her, puts an arm around her, and tells her. Hey, you might not even need a second round. You'll win based off the first round. When Betty can't beat Mara's time, Hollid steps in. He says Mara is disqualified entirely if she can't finish all of the trials.
0: I'm
6: an idiot for racing with this federation. I'm an idiot for coming back. I'm an idiot. They're so biased. The entire team erupts in Mara's defense. The woman with the best time should win. And Khalid backs down. But Betty still has one last chance to beat Mara's time. She slams through the course and makes her best time. But she's still three seconds short. Mara is the winner. Mara bursts into tears. Maysoon comes to her, picks her up off the curb where she slumped, and tells her, You should be happy. Even with three rounds, she couldn't beat your time. Even with 20 rounds, she couldn't beat your time. Betty finds Mara in the crowd and hugs her. Mara's fans cheer.
5: (laughs) At the end of the day, I'm not just racing for me. Every victory is a victory for my family and for the people of Janine.
0: Thank you to our two favorite rivals, Mara and Betty, for sharing your story with Snap if you want to see these women in action you are in luck because we produced this piece in partnership with Amber Fares the director of the Speed Sisters documentary which you gotta see with a quickness we'll have more information about where you can find the documentary and more on our website snapjudgment.org our translated voices are Amber Fares as Mara Jasmine Aguilera as Betty additional voices Jordan Carnes Mark Ristich, Pat Messini-Miller. The sound production and original score was by Leon Morimoto. And the story was produced by Eliza Smith. Now, when Snap Judgment continues, we're going to the beach. And Snap is, I am 98% certain that you have never gone to the beach like this. When the Snap Judgment Run Forward episode continues, stay from WNYC Studios. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Run For It episode. My name is Glenn Washington and today, these boots are made for walking or running as the case may be. Our next story comes to us by way of Modern Love, the podcast. It's a collaboration between the New York Times and WBUR Boston where they take pieces from the paper's popular Sunday column and match them with talent from the stage and screen. This particular story is from Joe Blair. Joe's a pipe in Isla who writes in his spare time. He's the father of four, including one autistic son, Michael, who's been the source of joy and of concern.
3: Prospective buyers must wonder about the hard-packed runway of dirt in our backyard where grass won't grow, and the hasp and the padlock on the refrigerator, and Well, they must wonder why the gate on our six-foot-high picket fence is permanently bolted shut. Deb and I hardly think about these things. We've been with Michael for 11 years. There are two runways inside the fence. One traces the edge of the house. (laughs) The dog made this one. He sprints from window to window, tracking my location. (laughs) Am I in the kitchen? (laughs) Leaving the kitchen. (laughs) Walking to the living room. Walking back to the kitchen. (laughs) It might be cute if it weren't for the destroyed windowsills and muddy paw prints on the siding. The other runway, in the center of our tiny backyard, belongs to Michael. It's a ten-by-three-foot stretch of shiny earth. There are three layers of sod beneath it, each one representing Deb's hope that this time the grass will take hold. This time the grass will take hold. This time... First thing in the morning, whether at 2 or 6 or 8, you can depend on Mike finding one of my leather belts sneaking out the back door and starting to pace on that patch of dirt. Brown, packed surface, hard on dry days, slick on rainy days. What could be better? A belt that if you grab it by the buckle and move it back and forth at a certain pace will make sine wave after sine wave its tail lapping the ground ever so gently as it releases the previous wave into the universe. It is a mesmerizing thing, so absorbing, so incredibly fantastical that Mike can't help releasing loud shrieks of delight (laughs) or agony or pent-up frustration or joy in that muddy patch in that release into the universe. Usually he's naked. Yep, or he'll only have boxer shorts on. He will be screaming or singing or howling in a high pitch. He is a supersonic Tarzan, an alarm clock that we cannot ignore because we have sleeping neighbors. One of us, Deb or I, cursing beneath our breath, will peel ourselves out of bed and hurry down the creaking stairway. Michael! We will say in our most authoritative voice, Michael, get in here! And Michael will drop the belt and do as we say. He will leave behind the thing he loves most, more than food, and he will do what we say. Until we're back in bed. And then he will return to his beautiful runway with his magical belt, and he will make the world understandable in his way. It is a poor substitute, we've learned, for the real thing. Ocean waves. When Mike first saw the ocean two summers ago on a beach in San Francisco, he was enthralled. He dropped the belt he always carried threw himself on the sand that was warm and fine and listened to the sound of the surf. It was as if he had finally found someone who spoke his language. The Pacific Ocean. We visited the beach every day for five days, but this was only vacation, and despite what boys want, vacations end. Soon Mike was back in Iowa, and it was the belt again, lapping against the brick walkway while he waited for the school bus with his father. One evening, Mike's twin sister Lucy said to Deb and me, the teachers will think I'm stupid like Mike. Mike is not stupid, Deb said. Mom, Lucy said patiently, you know what I mean. Yes, Deb said, I know what you mean. But you've got to know what I mean, too. Imagine if you found yourself in the middle of China somewhere and everyone was trying to talk to you, but you couldn't understand them. And everyone thought that you were stupid. But you were still just like you are. How would you feel? I have had glimpses of the kind of man I should be. Such are the revelations we are afforded. Passing glimpses like the small hidden pond you pass while driving on a road for the first time, suddenly opening up and then closing once again so that it can be instantly forgotten or recalled only in part. I've had glimpses. When I was 10, I would pray to God and ask for my challenge. Give me my challenge, I would pray. Give me my challenge, and at my lowest moments, I've thought that was my mistake. I asked for it. <sighs> These days, I rarely talk to Mike because he rarely responds in anyway. You may think this is cruel, ignoring my own son, and if you were to spend one day with him, you might be full of energy and hope and goodwill, but I've been with him every day of his life for 11 years. My bad habit of ignoring my son has become so ingrained that our routine of non-communication has become something of a runway all its own. And I ignore the very things that fascinate Michael. The belt. The patch of dirt. Still, once in a while, we engage one another. Sometimes, for example, we play the blinking game. While lying next to each other, very close, Mike will look at me out of the corner of his eye. A sly smile playing across his face, and he will blink once. (laughs) Then in response, I will blink once. His smile will gain in radiance, and he will answer my blink with one blink of his own. This will go on for some time, whipping Mike up into a fit of laughter. (laughs) But tonight, I lie next to Mike. It's 11, well past his bedtime. He's been laughing hysterically for at least an hour, which might seem cute to you, but to me, indicates that he's on the edge of a seizure. Our faces are very close in the dark. Mike likes it this way. Close. He is a beautiful boy. His eyes are large and liquid. His facial features are clean. The great challenge I asked for when I was a boy, lying in bed next to me, very close to my face. Faith is nothing other than an acceptance of eternity and at the same time of death. The great challenge, my great challenge, is nothing other than, in the face of eternity and death, a question of kindness. Can I, being alive at this time, love this boy? Can I listen to him? Can I be a good father to this boy? We have glimpsed the future. Of Mike at six foot three, 250 pounds, his sporadic anger triggering the need for drugs and restraints while I grow older, smaller and weaker. And Deb and I decided that we want a shot at a different future, one in which Mike, near his beloved waves, maybe isn't so troubled. So after nearly two decades in Iowa, we're moving to the coast to the waves. I have no work there, but I will find work. We have no community awaiting us, but we will make one. (laughs) The people who come to look at our house don't understand this, but it is not theirs to understand. It has not been given to them. It has been given to us. Mike, I say in the darkness, you're a good kid. I say it. And then I keep listening, for once I don't stop listening after a few seconds as I normally do. Instead, I let the seconds run on. Mike has ceased his laughter now. After some time, I don't know how long, he whispers very quietly, You're a good kid. A good kid. Mike, you're a good kid. I'm proud of you, I say. The words wave and wave, and then they come back broken and and then full. Proud, Mike says. I'm proud of you. I love you, I say. It's a profession. It's also a self-rebuke. Love, Mike says a few minutes later. I love you. Love you. I love. I love you. You. After Mike seems to be done with his response, I ask, how would you like to live by the ocean? This brings a Big smile. He's looking off away at something far. The words wave and wave. Ocean, he says.
0: Thank you so much to the good folks at Modern Love for sharing Joe Blair's story with Snap. If you want to find out more, go check out their show and subscribe to their podcast. Not only will you hear from the editor of the New York Times Modern Love column, you can follow up with Joe and find out whether his family ever moved to the coast. Joe has written a memoir by the Iowa Sea and you can also hear interviews with Michael T. Williamson, the actor who voiced Joe for this story, and can see Michael T. in the Oscar-nominated film, Fences. we we'll have a link to all of that, including the Modern Love podcast, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for this story was by Pat CD Miller. Now then, Snap If you need more stories get more stories. Subscribe to the Snap Judgment podcast and dance with whomever brought you here. The Uber producer, Mark Ristich, Pat McEady Miller, Anna suspect: Eliza Smith, Joe Rosenberg, Renzo Gorio, Adisa Egan, Leo Monimoto, Davey Kim, Taylor DeCott, Nancy Lopez, and Jasmine Aguilera does salsa even though this is not the news. No way this is the news. In fact, you could run as fast as you can through the tunnel and end up right back in the same Pac-Man game on the other side of the screen, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.